Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and you care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at this psalm and see what you'd have us to see from this and guide and open up our eyes in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of the mercies of the and judgment unto you, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come unto me? I will walk in within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from, from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whosoever privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. My eyes shall be unto the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. All right, we're going to look at this. We told very clearly at the beginning of this that it is a Psalm of David. So this, this is one that we know who wrote it. And then he starts out, I will sing of the mercy and judgment unto you, O Lord, will I sing. And this word, this first word for sing has the idea of being a strolling minstrel. If you think about you know, some of your older medieval days, they show you this guy walking around with his, his uh, lute and, and just chanting and singing and making his money by just going around and sharing, you know, sharing some story, a lot of times story in song. But what does he say that he's going to do this about? God's mercy and his judgment. Now, we can understand the mercy part, God showing mercy. But, you know, God's judgment is something we should be thankful for as well because it is his judgment that punishes evildoers. If we are obeying him, we don't have any great worry about being judged because there's not a problem. Uh, I think about this when you see police officers, you know, you're driving down the road for around down the road and you get these people, they've whipped past you at about 90 and then immediately hit their brakes and you're going, okay, there must be a police officer up there because they're, they're now worried about being ticketed. And I've seen this happen a lot of times when people aren't even going that fast over the speed limit. They immediately hit their brakes. And sometimes, even if they go in the speed limit, they'll hit their brakes because they've got a guilty conscience. Uh, which drives me nuts because I got my cruise control on and it's like, I don't care if the police officer's there or not because I've just got my cruise control on. But the judgment of God, when we're being obedient to him, we aren't worried about his judgment. Those who are worried about his judgment are those that are living a disobedient lifestyle. And David here is saying, I will sing of your mercies, O God, and your judgments. He's a king. He's used to being the one who makes judgments. And he knows that when they're honest judgments and people are standing before him in the integrity of their actions, there's no problem. If they're cheaters and liars and, and thieves and murderers, they, have, they are worried about just being in his presence as their judge and he's saying, God, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you for even your judgment. And we should be real excited about that because God's judgment is what keeps a lot of people in line. That if they have any fear of God at all, the fear of his judgment 
will keep them acting the way they're supposed to. And this is important because without us understanding that God has rules, that he has judgment, we really would go out and do anything we would uh, want, wouldn't we? The, the integrity of somebody is what do you do whether you know, whether you know uh, what would you do if you know you wouldn't get caught and punished? We tell you what you're willing to do. And God's judgment, what is he going to punish us for, keeps a lot of people from just doing whatever they want. The story this morning about Cain. Cain was not worried about God's judgment and his punishment. Matter of fact, if we remember God, when, he, when God punished him, he said, God, you're, you know, basically, God, you're being unfair. You're being too hard. All I did was murder my brother. Didn't like the punishment. God could have said, you're dead, and showed him great mercy just by casting him out from amongst the people, and yet he wasn't happy with the punishment he got. And then he says, unto you, O Lord, and this is Yahweh, will I sing and this one is just make a noise, make music. And David loved to make music. We need to be able to really desire that idea of making music, making sound to God, praising him, enjoying him, and just letting him know that we love him. I love to just sing songs to God. It's just something that's fun to do to me. And get into his word. Between those two things, I get to worship him a lot between those two and meditate and, and memorize his word and all of that all of that that comes with it spending time with God learning how he thinks learning what he expects when it, when we spend time with God his voice gets easier to hear his will gets easier to to discern and we don't spend as much time trying to figure out what God wants me to do Hopefully you're there where many of your decisions are just, this is what God would do, and this is what his word says, so I'm going to do it. And if you think back, however long you have to think back to be when you were first saved, how hard was it sometimes to determine what God would want you to do in a situation? It's like, well, God, I don't know you well enough. I don't know what, what you would do. This is why Jesus walked with the disciples for, for four years, teaching them. They got to watch how does, he, how does the master decide what to do? How does he deal with people that interrupt him when he had, had plans to do? And I think about the woman with the issue of blood. He's on his way to heal the little girl in a hurry because the father's so pressing, and the woman touches out, reaches out and touches him, and he questions who it was. He stops and, and to deal with this, with this issue. How many times do we just get so busy on our lives that we walk past everybody and every, that needs any help that, that should be ministered to because we're not listening to the Lord. I know I do it a lot. And I've told people, if I walk past you in the store, don't take it personally. When I go to a store, I've got a, I'm on a mission. It's to go get what I want and get out of the store as fast as possible. And that's how I am. So if I walk past you, I tell people, You're don't take it personally. I've had people, hey, yeah, whoa, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going, Shh. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, on a mission and it's to get in and get out. And I've shared with you, Lynn and I go to the store to do shopping. She'll stop very quickly within the store and find somebody to talk to. I'll go get all the groceries, and she'll still be in the same aisle talking to that person 90% of the time. I'm going, okay, it's time to go. I'm done. <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time, how many people have I walked past that probably need ministered to? Because when I get into that store, I'm not paying attention to anything but doing what I went in there for. 
We need to be careful. Jesus' example was just that. He stopped so frequently to deal with people when he was on his way someplace else. Some of the times, very important things that he was on his way to do, and yet he would stop when, when the Father gave him those opportunities. And here David said, I will sing. I'm going to sing. I'm going to lift you up, God. In verse seven, uh, 2, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. This is kind of interesting. Wisely. You know, it is this idea of walking circumspectly was what, what it really means. And circumspect is careful, watchful, discreet. Somebody who's walking circumspectly is being aware that others are watching them, being aware that they have a, a reputation and a, and a testimony that they're going out. They're going to be cautious. They're going to be prudent. Not, not to a place where they don't deal with anybody, but they're going to be saying, people are watching. And this is what he's saying when he says, I will walk wisely circumspectly. And this word perfect does not mean without error. It means complete or whole. Blameless. Blameless is about is a little little stronger than it, but closer than perfect. It's not necessarily that we're without error, but it is I'm walking in a way that God is leading and a complete. He's the one that's given me my completion. And he's the one that makes me whole. And when people look at our life, what what do they see? They see somebody who's trying to follow God. To the best of our ability, we follow God through his strength, through his power. Will we make mistakes? Absolutely. But you know, the strongest thing that the lost world can see is when we make a mistake, we repent before God, and we apologize to those that are watching us and looking at us and say, you know, I made a really bad mistake, and I've asked God to forgive me, and I'm going to ask you to forgive me. Some of the hardest things for a parent to do is ask their children to forgive them when they really mess up. And that doesn't mean that, the kid, that we need to apologize as much as our kids might think we do, or our parents don't have to apologize as much as we think they do. But there are times when we need to apologize for the bad example that we are. When we, when we lead them into the idea that lying is okay by the way we're living. When we get into the idea that there are things that are more important than serving God. Very important for us to be able to apologize to our kids and say, you know what, I, I'm human and I messed up. I just want, I've asked God to forgive me and I'm asking you to. Very important, and he's, David is saying, I will walk circumspectly and in that completeness that you've given me, God. And David is very much aware of how bad his life is. If he ever had any problems thinking that he might deserve something, the Bathsheba and Uriah event was a great example to him of how he is guilty of, of any possible sin. And we need to be very careful because all of us are guilty of any possible sin out there. Given the right circumstances, under the right, right places, we might do anything. And this is very important because I have heard many Christians, I would never do, and they would list something. And then you get to watch them, and three, four years later, they're doing just what they said they would never do. And the reason why, and we've said this before, if you think you'll never sin in an area, you will not put a guard in that area, and Satan will have you. Satan loves to go after where we think we're the strongest. 
or whatever that might be, whatever that is, he'll go after us in what we think our strongest area is because it's a double blow to us. Number one, we sinned and we recognize it. And number two, it's a blow where we thought we were strong. And all of a sudden, it can devastate you if you're not careful. And again, this goes back to what we're saying this morning. When we go down the path of sin, we need to repent and turn to God and ask for forgiveness and correct the situation with him and let him give us that, that uh, blessing. Then David gives a kind of an interesting statement here. Oh, when will you come unto me? He's saying that he's singing of God's mercy. He's singing of his judgment. He's behaving himself the way God wants him. And then he's saying, God, when are you going to come to me? He's at a place of depression a little bit even at this point. God, I don't feel you. I don't see you. How many times do we get to that place where we kind of go, God, where are you? God is right there, always right there. But there are those times when he's going to say, will you have faith and believe that I'm always here, that, every, that everything is for your good or for good? Over my years, there's been those times when all I could do is hold on to his word that he is there and that he is true and that he is, that it's all good and that he knows what's going on. There's been those places. And that's those tests of, do you believe my word? How many times in the middle of those tests do we give up on God and say, God, I just don't believe you anymore? For some of us, it's a lot. For some, it's not that much. Sometimes, it's just, sometimes it is a challenge, and it's designed to be a challenge. I have been there many times, when I, and I've shared with you, when everything seems to be going wrong, and I'm holding on to the rope of the promise that all things work together for good, I'm going, God, I don't understand this. I know you're here. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you've promised that all things are for good. I don't see it. I don't understand it, but I'm holding on to your promise. Anytime we're being tested by God in any area of our life, we need to grab hold of the verse that we've been, been learning on. Because I can guarantee you, everything you, try, everything you go through is based on what you're learning. When you're going through hard times that contradict what you're learning, grab hold of what you've learned and say, God, it is true and I'm not going to let go of it. You may be that, that picture of the, the cat that's hanging on the end of a rope for, you know, and with a little saying, you know, don't let, go the, don't let go of the other end of this rope. You know, it's, but you've got this times when sometimes all you're doing is holding on to this rope for all you're worth. What is that rope? Whatever promise it is that God has taught you. Whatever he's teaching you. And I've said it over and over. Whatever you're learning about God from the word or from your studies, expect to be tested in that area. I've heard it a hundred times with pastors. I've been teaching this message and I've been going through... <laughs> just what I have been studying. Inevitably, we go through what we're studying because God says, okay, you're going to preach on it, you're going to teach on it. Do you really believe it? And if you don't go, on, go through it before you teach it, you will very soon go after it, go through it after, your te after you teach it to say, are you going to hold on? Are you going to say that God is true? God's word is true. And I've and we've talked about this. If God's teaching you about love, I can guarantee you're going to find some unlovable person hard, or at least hard-to-love person in your life. If you've been teaching you about how trustworthy his word is, you're going to run into all kinds of problems to say, is his word trustworthy? If you're grabbing hold of some of my favorite verses that God is sovereign, God is good, and he's in that everything is for good, you're going to have some hard times hit you 
to say, do you believe that, all th that, that he's in, is sovereign, that he's good, and that all things work together for good? All of what we're learning is what we will be tested on. And I, I, give that, I want to give that out to people very strongly because when you're learning with God, you will be tested. And he is going to try what you've learned because there is no understanding that you believe it until it's tested. All right? Schools understand this. You know, they teach you different things and they want to find out, do you know? Do you know what we've just been teaching? How do they test it? They give us those dreaded quizzes and tests. And, the, and I loved it as one, one teacher said, this is your opportunity to, to show me what you know. All right? So God does the same thing with this. He's going, I've been teaching you. I want to see what you've learned. What do you really believe? And this is critical for us. What do we truly believe about God? And this is David saying, God, when are you going to show up? You know, when, when are you going to come into me? David is in the middle of something here. Then we don't, know, don't really know what it is. But he's saying, God, I've been walking in integrity. I've been walking in honesty. I've been walking in the thoroughness of what I know. When are you going to come to me? When am I going to feel what you have, your presence? And this is important for us to understand that feelings are not what's critical in our walk with God. I can feel really excited about God one moment and then not feel excited about God the next. That's not hard to have happen to us. And there's lots of churches that base everything that we do on feeling. Feel good. Feel really good when you leave here. We're going to give you really good music. I'm going to give you a real upbeat message. And, and you're going to leave here feeling really good. And the first trial that hits you, you have nothing to hold on to because feelings disappear easy. Marriages crumble because people base their whole marriage on feelings. And within five years, your feelings will be pretty much all the way gone for that first, after that five years. And then you have to kind of just say, I'm, I'm married because I made a commitment. And the feelings then come back after another couple of years. But so many marriages fall apart within the first three to five years because their feelings disappear. And they go, well, never loved the person. And you know what? They were absolutely right. They never loved the person because they didn't make it a choice. And here David is in the midst. God, I don't feel you here. Where are you? Come, come, come around, God. Now, it's fun to be on the mountaintop with God and feeling good with God and having a great time with God. But if you know anything about those times, whenever you think about them, how did you feel two days later after you left the, the retreat, after you left the great praise meeting? You felt empty a lot of times. The emotions were gone. And we need to set our mind on the truth, the truth of what God has said, where he's at. Because if, my, if I am putting all my faith in God's truth, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how I feel. This goes into McGee's statement where the Bible and I disagree, the Bible is right. Where my feelings and God's word disagree, God's word is right doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter whether I think that he's there with me. He says he's there. And I say, okay, God, I'm just going to turn around and look for you because you're here. And you know how much benefits you get from that when you just say, God, I know you're here, and you just take a moment to look for him? 
because he's kind of hiding around a bush or something and and he's saying, I just want to see, are you going to trust that I'm watching you? Are you going to trust that I'm leading you? Are you going to trust that, I'm, that I care for you? And I've quoted this so often, Blackaby in Experiencing God said, we need to look around, find out what God's doing, and join him. Too often, we kind of just blindly walk down the street, and God, God took the, the left fork, and we take the right fork, and then we wonder where God went. Uh, God, where are you? He's saying, I'm over here on the other side of the road where you went, went the wrong way. Get over here. And we need to be very careful of that. The last part of verse 2 says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Again, this perfect is complete and, and whole. And heart literally means the innermost being of who I am. I walk. And look where he's doing this in. in within my house. Why is this significant? Where are most people willing to sacrifice their relationship with God? In their own house when they're not in the sight of others. I can just do this because there's nobody who's conceived me. My testimony is not going to suffer because nobody sees me. Just our kids and our, and our, our spouse and, and all these other people that will see us. But David says, in my house, I'm going to walk with the complete righteousness that you've given me in my innermost being. My innermost being. How important is it for us to get to know God so deeply that within our very framework, we start agreeing with him, we start living correctly with him. And this is important. What do I watch on television? What do I listen to on, on the radio? What am I doing when I'm on my computer? What am I, what am I thinking about when I'm alone in my, in my house and, and nobody else is there? Am I thinking about God? Am I giving thoughts that honor God? Or am I dwelling on things that are totally dishonoring to him? Do I dwell on things, on the people who've made me mad and I start really stewing over how bad they treated me that day instead of coming to God and putting them in front of God? What do I do within my own home, in the privacy of my own space? Very critical, because if we start thinking about what we do in that, in that moment, we'll start really understanding who we are inside. And this is why it becomes so important. I need to learn to love others at the deep core of my being. I need to learn to forgive others at the deep core of my being, because I can speak the right words all I want, but if I don't live that were the words that I love them, that I forgive them. If I'm dwelling on their mis- the problems that they, I have with them, have I forgiven them? No. They, they may think I have. It may even look to the world that I have. But if I'm dwelling on how badly I was treated by that someone and that person and wanting them to be punished, I have not forgiven them. And so David is saying, I'm walking in my house, God. I'm walking in my house with the correct thoughts in my innermost being. I'm treating people. I'm thinking about the right things. God, I'm thinking about you. I'm not thinking about all these other things. He says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. And I love this first part. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. How many times do we allow wicked things before our eyes? Especially in our very visual world that we live in now. Books, television, uh, magazines, internet, 
all these different things, we can easily put things before our eyes that have no redemptive purpose. And this is something we need to be careful of. What, when we're watching our, our shows and our movies, what is being presented to us that's redemptive in God's kingdom? Or is it making fun of everything that's redem- of, that God holds as holy and righteous? When I'm, when I'm reading, am I reading books that are redemptive in nature? And I'm not just talking about the Bible and Christian books. There's our, there, there are things that are entertaining stories that are morally based that are fine to read. But am I reading romance novels and filling my mind with all the wrong thoughts? Am I, am I reading books that are derogatory toward God and rewarding evil that God says is not, not value? You know, the movies I watch, the shows I watch, what am I doing? How is it being lifted up? How is God being lifted up in all these things? We want to be very careful. Uh, Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a maiden with, with lust. So he was purposing to guard his eyes, the same thing that David is saying here. I'm guarding my eyes. I'm guarding what I'm going to look at. I am not going to let anything come in front of me that's going to lead to evil. And it says, I hate the work of those that turn aside. How do we look at people that are not godly? Now, this is not saying that I cannot hang out with the ungodly at all. Okay, I can play sports with them. I can work with them. I can, I can do a lot of things with them. With the way I would interpret in today's language, the ungodly should not be our best friend forever. <laughs> it should not be the person we hang out with all the time. Because the ungodly will lead us astray more often than us leading them into righteousness. It happens all the time. It's much easier for somebody to be pulled down than for, the, for, the, for you to pull them up. And we see this so often when, the, when people get unequally yoked in business, in marriage, whatever it might be, the godly person is almost always the one who compromises. The, the ungodly person rarely changes. And I say rarely, there's a very small percentage, and every once in a while you hear somebody with a testimony, you know, I got married the wrong, and I, and I was able to, to lift my spouse, and they came to, came to Christ. Yeah, well, it's about one in a thousand, one in ten thousand where that happens. It's not, not something you want to encourage people. David is doing the same thing. I, I turn away from them. I turn away from them. I, they are sent away. I will not have them. I hate their work. And this takes us, how do we feel in this world? Do I feel comfortable in this world? I hope not. Because this is not our home. We should never feel comfortable in this world. Now, we can create an area within our life that's really spiritual and feel somewhat comfortable there, but anytime we're exposed to the world, there should be an ache in our heart for what happens. I see people, and I know they're going to hell, and that creates an ache in my heart. I see people that are, that are doing and praising all kinds of things that aren't godly, and I just go, you don't understand. It's terrible what you're doing. The direction our country's going in with, with homosexual marriages being accepted and, and pressure on any Christian who's not honoring that and all these different things that are going on in our world, and it breaks my heart. 
Number one, to see how far this country's fallen, but also to know how much evil there's going to be because of this and how much trouble there's going to be for Christians because of the direction this, our country's going in and the world. But, you know, it said it was going to happen, so by the same token, it's very exciting to see. God said that in the end days will be like the days of Noah where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and every imagination of their heart was evil. We're not too far from that day. There are many people out there whose every imagination is evil. It's by God's standards especially. Very few righteous people out there. And sad to say, many people who claim to be Christians are living with every imagination of their heart being evil. Which means me wonder, number one, are they Christians? And number two, they better get right if they are. Because that's not the way we're supposed to live as a Christian. We need to say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. And you know, that's awfully hard for some people to say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. I don't know why it is, because he is always right. <laughs> and we're almost always wrong, so it's much easier for us to say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. But that takes humility. It takes humbling myself and saying, God, I need you to come into my heart, change who I am. But you know, the good news is the more we walk with God, then the more we study his word, and the more we listen to the preaching, the more he will change our heart so that it becomes easier and easier to be obedient to him and live a righteous lifestyle. And this is a wonderful place. And then it says, it shall not cleave to me. What is the it? The wicked things, the, the bad works of those who turn aside. Cleave is to be glued together. It's the same word that what uh, Adam said when, he's, when, when he was talking to Eve. He goes, this is bone and my, my bone and flesh and my flesh. And it talks about being cleaved, glued together. He says, I, David here is saying, I'm not going to be glued together with evil. And that's a good place to be. <laughs> Don't be glued together with that evil. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Forward is a very interesting word. It means uh, perverse, uh, uh, crooked. And again, heart is your inner being. He's saying that inner being is not going to be crooked and perverse. David is saying, God, I want to know you so much. goes back to Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understood, I need that clean, living heart. Jeremiah is going to say that God will take out the heart of stone from us and put in a heart of flesh that listens to him and obeys him. David here is saying, I don't want that crooked heart, God. I want to put it, it's going to depart from me. I'm putting it away. I think this is really after his, his event with Bathsheba when he had finally been humbled and after he had committed adultery and murder. And he said, God, I want this put as far away from me. I want to, I want to follow you so close. I'm going to depart. And it says, I will not know a wicked person. And this know is to know by experience. In other words, he's not going to hang out with a wicked person. How many times, I mean... How many times have you been with somebody who is ungodly, not a Christian, not a follower of Christ? And you know, sometimes you can feel dirty just by being with them for any length of time, just the stuff they talked about. And maybe you are dirty. Maybe you got involved with talking to them about the things you shouldn't have been talking about. How easy it is to get into language that, that is just not right. 
shared with you, I do not get into the, the gossip and rumor side of things because I usually, usually am very good about stopping it from going into my ears in the first place. And many times I've invited people, well, let's go talk to this person about what you want to tell me. You can tell me anything you want about them as long as they're here so they can defend themselves and tell me the other side of the story. But that is the thing. How do we stop these things from happening? We make the determination that it's not going to happen around us. Whether we walk away, like Joseph had to do with Potiphar's wife, where he fled the scene, or if it's our area that we can control, we say, no, you're not going to speak that way. You're not in this area because it's my, my property, my house, my, my whatever. And you spend time not listening to it, whether it is that you walk away from it or you make them leave. Whichever way it is, you've got to bring the right attitude in. And as I've shared, when I had the one in my restaurants, I never had to tell people not to swear, not to curse, because I was professional. I set the standard of being professional. It wasn't going to happen around me. And I very rarely had to tell people that language is inappropriate because God was there and I didn't use it, so they never used it around me. And so there's this idea of we set the standard ourselves and we hold that standard. And I had, I'm not saying I never had to tell people that, but very rarely did I have to tell people that language is not being used around here. This is, we're going to be professionals in this, in this environment. We're not going to do this. We're, this is how we're going to behave. So the key on this to make sure it doesn't happen, because the more it happens around us, the more it starts to affect us. And this is something that happens all the time. Our teenagers practically don't know any other language because when they watch on TV and the songs they listen to have no adjectives other than one adjective which is something nobody wants to be saying in this room. That's the only adjective most of our teenagers and young people know. And it's crazy. You listen to them and nothing is big or small or great or little or awesome or wonderful or spectacular. It's all one adjective that they use and they're not even using it and it doesn't even mean anything compared to what, you know, of what they're talking about. And if they really, if you were to take it literally, you know, and I've even asked a couple of them, I'll go, I didn't know you were that kind of guy. You wanted to do that to that person? They go, what? I go, well, that's what you just said you were going to do to them. I go, I didn't know you were that type of person. This is this idea of how are we going to deal with it? We don't allow it to around us. Whether it is I leave or they leave, but we don't allow it to happen around us. And this is what David is saying. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't allowed. But, but the worse, the worse this, kind, this world is getting, the more this kind of thought patterns, the more it's happening, the more it's happening. And it literally is that I will know no wicked person. We all now know and entertain ourselves. We entertain ourselves with movies that have that stuff. We entertain ourselves with songs that have that kind of stuff. We entertain ourselves with people that are around us. We, we stand out and we're usually called Bible thumpers and, and holy rollers or whatever other terms they want to use. And I'll proudly, I'll proudly wear any of those terms. It doesn't bother me. All right, verse 5. Whoso privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. He that hath a high look and a proud heart, I will not suffer. This idea of privately, in, in the back rooms, uh, slandering his neighbor. Slander is a pretty strong term. It literally means to falsely and maliciously and, with def and make a defamating statement about somebody. And it has intent on it. When 
people are tearing others down with their words, making them look bad, making them, making others feel feel that they are, uh, that they're better than somebody else in some way. And he says, those who slander their neighbors, I will cut off. And I'm not sure whether this is David talking his king that he's going to get rid of them, or if we've switched over to God at this point. Uh, there seems to be a kind of a mix between the two through this whole thing. But it says, cut off. And remember, we've talked about this in, in our, during the Pentateuch. God very often says that he that violates certain things will be cut off from his people, sent away from the people, you know, put into punishment. And cut off means to be separated. Same thing that happened this morning with Cain. Cain was cut off from the rest of the family and saying, your sin is so bad, I'm sending you away. You're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. You cannot be around other people right now. And God cuts off. And he'll do the same thing to us as Christians. If we get so far into sin, he'll cut us off and, and basically say, are you going to repent or you're going to be out there on your own feeling separated from him? When, when the Lord returns and the trumpet sounds, what about the Christian right then that's out on his own and he's not listening to God, he's not repented yet? He would give him time, but at that moment, maybe. If you're a saved, it is a gift of grace and you will be called home. You will lose rewards, you will have all the other problems that happen on it. And this is the key on salvation. We've got to always remember it's grace not works. Even if, I'm, if I am saved and I'm backslidden, I'm still saved. I still will go to heaven in the rapture. If I died in the backslidden condition, if I am saved, I will go to heaven. The question is, when you're living in a backslidden condition, is are you saved? Did you ever know God? And that is a pretty dangerous place to try to say, is I'm living in sin and I know that I'm, I'm saved, that's going to be a pretty hard sell because if you're not under conviction of your sin, you don't know for sure that you're saved. If you, can't, if you can sin without conviction, I would even say I would be very scared to say that I was a Christian if I could sin without conviction. Because every time I sin, I get convicted. Doesn't mean I don't stop doing the sin necessarily, but I get convicted about what I'm doing. Now, I may still be able to go forward into that sin. I may still be able to, to act out. But the conviction makes it there's no joy at all in the sin. And it makes it miserable. You think you're going to enjoy the sin like you used to, and all of a sudden you're being convicted of it. And there's not even the little bit of joy that, that would have been attached to it. If you are backslidden, if you are living against God, and you are saved, you're under conviction, you're then you will be going in the rapture. If you died in that condition, you'll go to heaven because it is a gift of grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, if you're living in sin and you have no conviction of, that, of it being wrong and you're not under conviction for living in sin, then you have the more serious question, do I know God? Am I in a relationship with the God of the universe? Is he my father because he's not disciplining me? And you have to look at that part of your life. And this is why I will agree with most pastors. If you are living in sin, you need to really look at your life and say, do I know God? Because you're going to have a hard time convincing anybody that you know that you are one of his children at that point in time. I'm not going to say you're not. That's between you and God. But your lifestyle is showing that you're not.
you could be saved. That's between you and God and the gift of grace. But I'd hate to be in that position trying to figure out whether I am. You look at it and say, am I convicted? Am I still, am I still thinking about God? Am I still, is he still my father? Is he still working with me? Because, again, the greatest example is the prodigal son. Backslidden completely. Wallowing around in the mud for all practical purposes. <laughs> and realizing that he needed to go back to the father. He's a great picture of a backslidden Christian. Still belonging to the father, still belonging in the family, even though he's wallowing around in the mud pits. And yet God says, oh, you've come back. Thank you. Let me give you back everything that you had. I'm not even worried that it'd be, of course you're not worried that it'd be my son, but I'm going to make you my son, but you're still my son. This is what's important. When we're his, we are his. No matter how I'm living, I'm his. I cannot guarantee I'm his without being able to show, here's what I'm doing that honors you, God. Okay, and this is what the book of James was all about. Show me, show me your faith by, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. All right, it's much easier to say, this is what I'm doing, this is how I've changed, this is how I'm walking with God, than to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a true believer. I don't read my Bible, I don't go to church, I don't pray, but I'm a believer in Jesus. Well, you might very well be, but you're not doing anything that's going to prove it to anybody. Your testimony stinks, you're, you're wallowing around in the mud, and you are, as far as most anybody looks at, lost. Prove to me that you're saved. It's very hard to do when you're wallowing around in the mud, especially if you don't have that conviction. If you're enjoying that, then you've got some serious things to look at. So, so we're not to slander, we'll be cut off. And he says, he that has a high or proud look and a proud heart, that inner, innermost being again, he will not suffer or entertain, okay? He's not going to spend time with them. He's not, he's not letting them get away with anything. And this is something that needs to be really understood. God does not handle people who want to say, look what I have done. He does not reward the flesh. And this is why many that are saved are going to stand before Jesus on the, on the Bema Seat Judgment and almost everything that they've ever done in their life is going to burn up because everything was done in, look at me. Look how good I am. Look at I, God, you are just so lucky that I'm your servant and how good I am at doing these things. And God's going to say, well, fine. You, know, you did it in your own strength. You, got some, you, you did some good, but it's going to burn up. It's going to burn up. We need to be very careful God uses the least likely person so often. It's been amazing over the years to look at who God has used in positions and saying, wow, God, how, do, how are they getting that done? And God's saying, well, I chose them. I'm giving them the strength. I'm giving them the power. I'm giving them the expertise. The danger is when we've been doing it, we start out that way knowing that it's not me, and then we get doing it for a few years, and we start thinking that some part of it is us. And we start getting proud and... And, well, God, you know, hey, you know, I'm the one that's there all the time. I'm the one that did this. I'm the one that did that. And God's saying, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything that's worth anything. Verse 6, my eyes shall look upon the faithful of the land, and they may dwell with me. He that walks in a perfect way, he will serve me. I love this. Those who are faithful get to dwell with God. Faithfulness. I love just being with God. 
My greatest desire is to hear God in heaven say, Welcome, come in, my good and faithful servant. I just want those words spoken. I mean, I don't need anything else, but if I could hear those words, I want to finish well, because I see so many people that I've watched over the years who don't finish well with God. They get to a point where they get into a retirement mentality or whatever it is, and just kind of forget to serve God and stop serving God and, and stop running the race. Maybe they got tired. Maybe they got knocked down. I don't know, but you look at that, and I've seen so many people who don't finish strong, who in their marriage, and it's amazing to me how many marriages now are breaking up after 40 years of marriage, and you look around, and these people are getting divorced, and it's like, you went through 40 years. What, what are you, what's going on? You see somebody who's been in service for God in the ministry and just say, the heck with it. I'm done with it. It's just not worth it. And you're going, what is going on? Did you start falling, working in your own strength? Did you quit trusting God? What is happening? I want to finish well, and I encourage everybody to finish well. Paul, in his last song, says, I have run the race. I have finished the course. You know, I am ready now to be poured out and given the last that I have, my very life, for my God. I want to see myself. I want to see people that I know finish well. Not come crashing down before the finish line, but keep trusting God all the way through. Moses was one of those that didn't really finish well. He got angry with the people, struck the rock. And from that point on, the statement that he kept making is, it's your fault that I'm not going into the promised land. Over and over, he blamed the people for his being angry and striking the rock. And you'll, if you read Deuteronomy, it's a big theme of Deuteronomy. At the end of Numbers, it's a big thing. You know, it's your fault. I'm not going in because you guys. You know, he never admitted to God that he was at fault. And I really believe that God knew that he would never do it, which is why he told him you're not going into the promised land because he knew that he wasn't going to repent of that anger moment. He ended up not going into the promised land because of his unforgiving heart to the people. Now, he had a lot of right, you know, right to be angry with them. They were hard, stiff-necked people that made his life miserable for 40 years. But it still wasn't their fault that he got, ang you know, got so angry that he did something that God told him not to. And he needed to be able to say, God, I, I sinned. And we need to be careful that we don't blame others for our sins. Real easy. Happened all the way back in Genesis 2. <laughs> God, the woman you gave me, God, it's her fault and yours. You know, it's not my fault. And the woman was simple. She just blamed the serpent. It's a problem that's been going on since the very beginning. Blame somebody else. Don't take, don't take responsibility. Cain, where's your brother? How should I know where my brother's at? Well, you kind of killed him and left him in the field, but you should know exactly where he's at. But God always is coming to us and saying, are you ready to confess your sin and repent? He does that to us to this day, whether it's through a sermon or a teacher or through the reading that we do in the Bible. He's going to hit us upside the head and say, are you, hey, you know, I've got a question for you. What, where, where are you? What are you doing? God, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we have a choice. Confess or pretend we don't know what's going on. When we confess and repent, we come back into fellowship. And he's going to wait until we confess and repent before he brings us back into fellowship. 
and we're not going to feel comfortable in His Word, in church, with Christian friends, in the Bible. When we are not ready to repent, we will not feel comfortable with God's presence in any way, shape, or form, and we pull back away from it. And this is when, when we see ourselves pulling away from the Bible, pulling away from the, from the fellowship, we better analyze our life and find out where have I sinned? What, what do I need to confess? Because we're actually pulling away from God or trying to pull away from God. Verse 7, He that works deceit shall not dwell in my house, and he that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. He that works deceit. And this is continuous. It's his purpose. It's his business to work deceit. Shall not dwell in God's house. Shall not dwell in God's presence. And he that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight, shall not be established. Oh, truthfulness. I mean, this is something that is, in our day and age, truthfulness does not seem to be something that people are participating in. God said in the Ten Commandments that we shall bear no false witness. We shall not lie. And how easy is it for people to lie in this day and age? Uh, you know, we think about contracts. Contracts used to be a shake of the hand and some words, and you had a contract. Now, even if you have what's called an ironclad contract, the other lawyers might be smarter than your lawyers and find loopholes in it. And that's what it's all about. How much can I lie and get away with? How much can I say to you and still get away with being dishonest? And in the New Testament, Paul says, let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. We don't need to be making promises. We don't need to swear about the truth because we should be known that when we say something, it's true. If we deny something, that's also true, that that we're making the correct statement. But in our day and age, people lie all the time. It's almost a habit, and it's to the point where people don't even think lying's a sin. As long as I don't get caught, as long as they don't think that I'm, you know, that I don't uh, say enough lies that I become untrustworthy with somebody, well, for most people, I don't trust anything. There's people that I don't trust anything they say. Because if their lips are moving, they're lying. Just because that's who they are. They'll they'll tell you half-truths, and it's like you never know whether they're telling you any truth. And when you get to that point, it's kind of scary to be around that person. You know, you're looking at them and saying, makes no sense to lie about this, but you lie about everything, so are you telling me the truth about this statement? And David, in this psalm, is saying that those who work deceit and lie do not have a place with God. Do not have the place with God. Why? Because God is truthful. He is a truthful individual. All that he says is true. Anything that God says, we can count on. Because it is true. It is absolutely true. We don't have to wonder, God, are you telling the truth when you say that all things work together for good? Are you telling the truth when you say that there's a heaven? Are you saying the truth when you said that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to you but by him. God, are you saying the truth that there's a seven-year judgment coming in the, in the near future where Satan is going to be the ruler and, the, and be pretty much in control? God, are you saying the truth when you say all these things? The answer is yes. <laughs> he is being truth. Anything, anything he says in the word is true. It can be counted on. This is the important thing. 
we can count on God. We can put all of our trust in him. He is never going to lie to us. That should give us great encouragement and great confidence. If God says it, it's true. When people say it, you have to think twice about it. It may or may not be true, depending on how trustworthy they are. Some people, when they say it, they're pretty trustworthy. You can pretty much count on it. Others, you know, we all know people like this. They say they're going to do something, then you say, I hope they might show up. I need to move my furniture Saturday at, at 10 to get it, get it to the storage place in time. And they go, well, yeah, I'll be there. And they finally show up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What happened? Oh, well, this, that, and the other thing. Oh, yeah, your word doesn't mean anything to you. Those who work deceit and lie have no place with God. He places, he places our words in a very high place. He, he hates gossip. He hates lying. He hates slander. He hates that malicious talking about people. And the reason why? Because it hurts people beyond the physical level. It hurts them right their soul. And God understands the pain of the soul and how that is not, not to be there. I will early destroy all the wicked in the land, and I will cut off all the wicked doers from the, land, from the city of the Lord. Early, quickly, you know, he'll divide, he'll put to an end the wicked of the land. Now this is kind of hard because earlier in the Psalms we read all these different statements. God, how long is it? Why do, why do the wicked suffer? You know, why, do they, why do they get blessed? How come, they're not, how come they're not suffering for all the wickedness they do? Well, early in God's time place is a lot later than what we think of. And we've got to keep that in mind. We think in terms of maybe 100 years if we're really fortunate to live that long. God thinks in terms of thousands of years. So early to God is their entire lifetime is still early in his mindset. We look at this and God says, very quickly I'm going to come and deal with them. And we want to always keep this in remembrance. God's quick timing is sometime before eternity ends. When they stand in front of the white throne judgment to be judged, it's still going to be quick for God. He's going to divide the people. He's going to keep them and reward them for what they've done. We just need to learn to be patient and let, patient and let God do it. Because he is sitting there trying to get them to come to him. Their entire life, even though it seems like they have everything they ever wanted, the one thing we know for sure is without God, they're not very happy. They're not very pleased. And all you've got to do is read the different things about stars and starlets and actors and actresses and singers and, and professional athletes who seem to have everything in our mindset. Why are they getting on drugs? Why are they getting into alcohol? Why are they doing self-destructive things? Because they're still trying to find that empty void in their life. And suicide because they're just so tired of the end. And we look at them and say, God, if I just had that kind of money, I'd be really happy. No, we wouldn't because if our, if our hopes weren't on God, it doesn't matter what we have. Without God, we're empty. With God, it doesn't matter what we have or don't have. God has filled that void. I have had great peace in my life. I have had great satisfaction in my life because God is there filling the empty void that most people are trying to fill. And many are trying to fill it with money, fame, acclaim, 
uh, outward love. They think that having millions of people chasing after them is going to fill that great desire of fulfillment, and then they just finally get tired of it. They get sick and tired of everybody chasing after them because it didn't fill, it didn't make them, make them happy in the long run, and they don't want it anymore. And then they can't get rid of it. We just want to make sure that we understand with God, all things are there to be great blessing. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and serve you and to worship you. We ask that you help and guide and lead us as we as we go our ways, give us opportunities to share you with others and help us learn to follow you in a greater way that we will walk with that perfect heart that you talk about. In your son's name, amen.